Amen. Morning, everyone. Morning to those who are joining us online. Uh, Don't you want to open up a Bible uh, to Mark chapter 4? We are in the last little section of uh, Mark chapter 4. If you are... um, if you're new or you're joining us or you haven't been part of this uh, series much lately, we're uh, in the, uh, the Gospel according to Mark and we'll be there for a while and we are dealing with the end of uh, chapter 4 this morning. We're going um, to do this slightly differently to the way we, that, that way we sometimes preach through passages. Uh, Mark's Gospel has got so many different, uh, I suppose, parts to it, uh, um, sections, feel to it. And sometimes we read the whole passage and then I give you like three points in a poem uh, kind of thing or like 12 points and no poems. Uh, that's more normally what happens actually. Uh, what we're going to do this week is we're going to go verse by verse through it. Uh, so we just, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to go one verse, one verse, one verse and like, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Okay. So just, I'll, we're changing it up. Maybe I'm just bored of like the three points, 12 points approach. But I think it actually works better on this passage because it's a very familiar passage to us. Uh, for many people, if you've been in church for a while, oh, you're like, oh, I know the story, I know how it ends, you know, you know, like, oh, I know Jesus came to calm the storms of my life, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> can we go get some coffee? <clears throat> but I think there's a lot uh, in here that's very helpful uh, for us. And if you are new to this and you don't know um, this account well, um, I think it's going to be very encouraging uh, to you as well. Um, I also want to mention here that in Mark, I think, uh, we mentioned this on occasion. Uh, I think I mentioned in the parables, the parables, uh, when Jesus teaches in parables, they have layers of meaning. So there's the obvious meanings, and then there's layers of ways in which you can interpret parables as well. Um, and in this account, I think there's, uh, there's literal things happening, and there are figurative, almost metaphorical things happening. Um, so Jesus calms the storm. I'm ruining the story for you already. But Jesus calms the storm but we're also going to look at the storms of our lives. Are you with me? Like, so it's not a leap to that. Like, it's not exactly what it means in the, uh, in the context of Mark here. But I think as we go through it and we engage with the reaction of Jesus and the disciples, you realize that it's actually okay to do that. Uh, I mention that all by way of introduction because sometimes when you come to study the Bible on your own, uh, you, need, you need to engage those different gears and not just look, look, say, okay, Jesus tells the storm to be quiet. Like, okay, let me move on. It's like, well, maybe there's storms in my life that need uh, a word from Jesus to settle them kind of thing. Are you with me? There's ways in which you can read Scripture and learn and engage with it. And I think uh, it's not always appropriate to do that. And so we do need some help. And we need to learn how to interpret Scripture and not just open up our Bibles anywhere and be like, okay, well, is this literal or figurative or whatever else? And people hijack different parts of Scripture and uh, build stuff that can be uh, um, damaging to us. So we need to be... Careful and wise and thorough, but I think as we go through this, it's perfectly legitimate for us to look at both literal and figurative meanings of Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I normally pray after we read the passage. I'm going to pray now before. We never want to approach God's word thinking that we're sharp enough to understand or see what we want to need to see or hear what we need to hear. So let's pray for the help of the Holy Spirit as we uh, dive into this passage together this morning. Let's pray. Father, it's such a gift um, to have your word uh, amongst us, in front of us. We, we thank you that you have spoken and you continue to speak. And you have made that promise to us that you would continue uh, to teach us, that you would continue to instruct us, you would continue to lead us 
through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, that we would see you clearly, that we would see ourselves clearly, that we would come to a deepening understanding of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we, as we look at your word again today, that we wouldn't find ourselves just observing, we would find ourselves hearing your voice, that we would find our hearts able to receive what you're saying to us. We would find our eyes being opened to see things that we would never normally see in our own wisdom. We pray, we plead with you for your help to speak to us through your word. Our souls most need to hear the living words of the God who loves us. And so we pray that you would speak and help us now through the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, sorry, I didn't even tell you where. Mark chapter 4, uh, we're going to start in verse 35. Uh, let's do verse 35, 36 together. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along uh, since he was in the boat and other boats were with him. So just in case you haven't been tracking along with the story at the moment, where we find ourselves is that Jesus was, it says there he was already in the boat. Jesus has been teaching from the boat. You remember that there's a massive crowd of people and he decided to get into the boat and push away uh, from, from the shore just so he could not be like, squashed with people. Uh, and if you go to certain parts of the Sea of Galilee, there are actually a couple of areas where they'll take you to, where it almost forms like a natural amphitheater, where um, you can speak at a normal volume on the water, and uh, like thousands of people can hear you just by sitting on, on the shores. It's shaped like that. I'll, I'll touch on it a bit more about the geography of the Sea of Galilee, but that's what's happening. Jesus has been teaching everyone on the boat. He's like, he's done now. He's done with teaching. It's getting late evening. He says, let's go and cross over to the other side, which is actually a Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're going, and the disciples would have probably been, con been confused. I think a lot of the things that Jesus did with the disciples, they're like, why are we doing this? Like, why, why are we going there? Why are you interacting with these people? Like, he's always doing things that are unexpected to them. And um, he decides we're going on to the other side. It's not just like around the corner, like on the other side. Like, that's the Gentile side. Like, why on earth would we want to? Would we want to go there? Um, I think it's important to note in this, both in the literal and the metaphorical understandings of this, uh, that this is Jesus' idea to cross over the lake. Because you need to bank that, because everything that's going to happen next in this story, Jesus knew was going to happen. And it's his idea to get them into a boat, approaching evening, out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, let's go. Jesus is the one who starts this. And it's really, really important for us to bank this. I'll mention it a few times probably, that uh, when you're going through a storm, you didn't arrive there by accident. There is a, a lord of the storm, as it were. It's his idea. It's his idea. I know that may not sit well with us, and some of you might be pushing back thinking, that's ridiculous. Uh, I, I disagree with that. I say, well, you can disagree with it all you want. I think the Bible makes an abundantly clear case that you are in the hands of the Lord of the storm. It's his idea when the storms come. Jesus knows this is going to happen. And yet he's happy to have all of his disciples, all of his followers in the boat with him. Chaps, let's go to the other side of the sea. Uh, maybe they felt fairly confident. Quite a few of his disciples were pretty seasoned fishermen. So they at home on a boat. I mean, some of you would be like, yeah, no, let's not, let's not do that. Like, 
if Jesus called you to follow him, it's like, Jesus, I'll follow you when we're on land. But what's this hanging out on boats the whole time kind of thing? Like, you know, have you ever been out in a boat, like or a, a ship or anything? Ships, there's not so much because they like hardly move. But like in a boat on rough seas out there, you get land people and you get sea people. And some of you have fed all the fish in the sea out in the middle of the ocean there because even because you took your motion sickness pills, they did nothing to you kind of thing. Or they, they work for a while and then next thing. And there's nothing worse than being seasick. Once it starts, you know, the only thing that fixes that is being back on land. And then after then, it takes you a while to recover and you think you're going to go and meet the Lord while you're bobbing out there on the ocean. I, most of these oaks would have been okay in the boat. I don't know about Matthew. He's a tax collector. probably not that keen to be out there. But this is Jesus' idea, let's go. It's been a long day. Jesus has been teaching. It's been a long couple of days, actually. He's been driving out demons, teaching people, healing. He is tired. He's tired. Guys, let's get away from the people, and then let's cross over this sea, lake. Verse 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. Let's just stop there quickly. Um, I'm not an expert on these boats, but they have found um, boats like this from, they've carbon dated them almost to exactly the time of Jesus. And these fishing boats had lower sides. Obviously, if you're casting nets out, you want the, the sides of the boat to be a bit lower. So these, these boats are about 20 odd meters long, fairly thin. You could probably put about 15, 20 people on these ones that they found there. So it's perfectly reasonable that Jesus and all of his disciples would be on this boat. But with these lower sides, it's rocking and rolling. And it says there a great windstorm arose and the waves are breaking over the boat and the boat is filling up with water. Okay, I mean, you don't have to be an engineer to realize that that's not a good thing to happen. The boat should be outside. I mean, the water should be out the boat. When the water gets in the boat, you have problems. Uh, and this is not like some sophisticated thing. It's like just turn on the pumps kind of thing, chaps. You know, just uh, you know, get it out there. Like This is a problem for them. And... Again, you may, not have, um, you may not have been there, highly unlikely. Many people haven't been to the Sea of Galilee. We're not talking about Emerentia Dam. Okay, you may not be very familiar with Choburg, but Emerentia Dam's down the road. I was so curious about this, I wasted about half an hour this week trying to figure out how many times bigger the Sea of Galilee is than Emerentia Dam. <laughs> it's 1,900 times bigger uh, than Emerentia Dam. Okay, Emerentia Dam's not the smallest little puddle. But it, compared to the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee covers about 166 square kilometers. It's a proper body of water. So this trip over the sea is, is like an endeavor. You know, it's not like uh, going out like a little fishing boat there on uh, the zoo lake or something like that. This is a proper body of water. And the weird thing about the Sea of Galilee is a, it's a very low-lying lake, very low-lying sea, and it's surrounded by mountains. When you're on the lake, uh, if you ever go there, that's the thing you do. You go out on the lake and they read the story. Out, you know, they read other stories. Hopefully not just the story because you know, let's, let's get off the lake as quickly as possible. It's, it's a beautiful setting. It makes the Bible come alive. You think Jesus chilled on this lake. It's amazing. But when you look, you can't help but be struck by this place is just surrounded by mountains. And what happens is that, I don't know, I'm not a geography teacher, but something happens between the mountains and the air and the temperature differences and storms pick up in the Sea of Galilee like this. And they're wild. You can even YouTube it. There's some videos of storms in the Sea of Galilee, and they're wild. And they come quickly, and they're not just like, you know, like, oh, whoopsie daisies, what, 
wobble, wobble here. They are proper, proper waves. And that's what's happening. It is a great windstorm arose. Again, these, most of them are seasoned fishermen. They have seen, they have, this is not their first rodeo, not their first seasoned fishing. They've, they've seen a couple of storms there. You read in the story, they are terrified. These seasoned fishermen are absolutely petrified of what's going on. This is not a casual little storm. This is a great, uh, a great windstorm that rises here. And their boat starts taking on water. Now, they should know what to do. But it's obviously at a level that they now are desperate. They have no other options. So what do they do? Read verse 38. This is where the story starts to go sideways a bit. He, Jesus, was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Let's just stop with that verse. There's a lot in there. Jesus is sleeping. He's fast asleep on the cushion. I, I love the detail in the Gospel of Mark sometimes. He's fast asleep, not just fast asleep, he's fast asleep on the cushion. Maybe there was only one cushion, and Jesus adopts the cushion when we're crossing, guys. I'm the leader of this gig, I'm taking the cushion. Sorry, I've been teaching the whole day, you clowns, you can row the boat kind of thing or whatever else. He's, he's sleeping on the cushion. We only have one, we only have one uh, specific reference to Jesus asleep. Uh, we're sleeping in all the Gospels, and it's here. It only mentions, it does mention, obviously he's human, he slept, uh, he slept every night or most nights, except when he was praying the whole night. Uh, Jesus was a human, he slept, but it's only particularly mentioned in the Gospels here, in the middle of a storm, on a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. It mentions that Jesus is sleeping. Why on earth does that make an appearance? There's several reasons. It's a reminder for us that, that Jesus is a man, and that he gets tired and he needs to sleep. And as I was reading this, uh, uh, um, you know, we're so familiar with the story, I had to read it again and again and just sit. I spent so much time this week just sitting, thinking. And something jumped out at me like this, and I thought I should mention it to you, uh, that some of you need to hear this. And there's a tr that trend on Twitter at the moment I love. You know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and then people just sprout normally nonsense, but like, so I don't, need to hear, I don't know who needs to hear this, but sleep is a gift from God. And some of you need to treasure the gift more. You're not meant to run on empty. You don't get a naughty badge or a trophy for going without sleep. Sleep is a gift. The Son of God in human form slept on a cushion. It's a good and godly thing to take a nap, to go to bed early, and to sleep. Some people, their spiritual lives are wobbling. They feel overwhelmed with life because they don't sleep properly. You stay up late watching Netflix or doing other nonsense. You don't sleep properly. And that has a massive effect on our lives. Sleep is a wonderful gift from God. And if you're not getting enough sleep, I'll pray that's almost all you hear today. Sleep. Not, not, not right now. You know, like, get some sleep. Get some sleep. Get into a rhythm of sleeping and identify the things in your life that are causing you not to have deep and restful sleep. Because some of them are just lifestyle things, but some of them dip a bit deeper, don't they, into our hearts. That's the reason why some people are awake in the middle of the night. Because there's fear. We're going to go down that road this morning. There's fear. There's anxiety. There's a million things. Your mind is racing. That's why you can't sleep. It's not that you're not in the bed. You're trying. You're trying your best to sleep, but you can't. 
Because there's other things that you haven't dealt with or you're not dealing with or you haven't given to the Lord, as it were. Those are the things that are stopping you from being able to enjoy the gift of sleep. There is Jesus fast asleep in the middle of the greatest storm these guys have ever experienced on the Sea of Galilee. How do you get to do that? How do you get to be fast asleep on a Christian? Well, A, you teach the Bible a whole lot and heal people. You get physically exhausted. He's tired, but he's also at rest. He's at peace, Jesus. He knows what's going to happen. He has an absolute confidence in his father. That's why he can go to sleep, knowing that there's a storm going to pick up, but he knows what's happening. He knows the purpose of that storm. He knows what he's trying to teach the disciples. He knows that he is in the hands of his father as he was a human on earth. Everything that's happening to him is coming from the father's hand. He can go to sleep. When you have an absolute confidence in God and in everything that's happening in your life comes from his hand, no matter how rough it may be, there's still waves, the boat is still filling up with water, you can still go to sleep. You can still go to sleep. It's amazing what you can do, how you can be at peace in the middle of a storm when your confidence in God is high and you see him clearly. That's what Jesus has. He knows his father. He knows the plans his father has for him. So he's able to sleep. You see, interestingly, in the rhythms of Jesus, I was contrasting, I think it was earlier in Mark, where uh, Jesus is awake while everybody else is asleep. He's up praying while they're all dorsing. And here you have everyone else panicking and Jesus is sleeping. His rhythms seem to, seem to go uh, differently to everybody else's. And maybe some of you need to hear that. Like, There's a time where you need to be up, not sleeping. Amen? Yeah, winter's coming. I mean, it's tough. It's like, oh, Lord, I love you. I want to get up and spend time with you. Ooh, but it's cold. I'm just going to pray in my bed. The Lord's trying to interpret the snoring there kind of thing. Like, There's times we should be up and active and praying and not sleeping. And there's times when we should be sleeping and not upstressing. And you look at Jesus and somehow he seems to march to a different beat. He has different rhythms. We can learn something from him and his trust in his father. What is the reaction of the disciples here? Well, they wake him up. They wake him up and we're not sure exactly what's going through their heads here. But they're like, but you can't be sleeping through this. I love the way they have to wake him up. He doesn't just like, ooh. You know, he doesn't just wake up in, on his own. He's in such a deep sleep. They like wake Jesus up and they're yelling at him. I can imagine they're yelling, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Now, we don't know what they're asking him at help. They might just be thinking, Jesus, grab a bucket and start like getting the water out of the boat. You know, we know how the story ends that Jesus just speaks to the waves. And the wind, they, don't, they don't necessarily know that's going to happen. They're not expecting. They're just like, no one can sleep through this. Come back, like, get, get, pitch in, help, do something, row, I don't know. Like, but don't just lie there sleeping. That's not helping anything. But they wake him up. And what do they say to Jesus? Don't you care that we're going to die, that we're about to die, we're going to die? Don't you care? That, 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 that question just strikes you as you read this account, doesn't it? And I think whenever anyone is going through storms, that is just such a default thing in us. God, don't you care? Don't you care? I mean, if you, assuming you can see, assuming you can see and you know what's going on, don't you care? Why on earth would you want to treat me like this? Why would you let these things happen to me? And I, I'm not talking about surface level, 
everyday little bumps and niggles kind of thing. I'm talking about storms. I'm talking about the kind of things that make you cry out to God and say, don't you care? Don't you care that I lost my job, my family members are sick, that I'm battling with my own health? Don't you care, um, you know, something's going on with one of your kids? Don't you care? These, these things that rattle us and shake us, your own ongoing um, sin struggles. Don't, don't you care, God? I keep falling over the same thing again and again. Don't you care? Do you, do you not see what is going on here? It's so, it's so simple and so in, I mean, reactive of us to ask that question of God. God, don't you, don't you care? We rush so quickly to doubting God's goodness and his care for us. And we, we're just like the disciples here. We, we wonder how what we're going through can possibly compute with everything else we know about God's love for us. There seems to be this collision. Yes, we hear all the time, God loves us, God cares for us, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. And then you go through some stuff and you think, that can't be true. If that can't be true with what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through, or what those people are going through that I'm journeying with them, no way, it's impossible. Impossible. It's worth us sitting with that question. It's worth you sitting with it. I don't know what storms you might be going through at the moment, what you might be facing. It's worth being honest with God that if that's the question on your heart, God, don't you care that you start there? You start there. I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. It's in the Bible here. You see the disciples, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their question. You'll see this later. He doesn't say, hey, 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 don't talk to me like that. Do you know who I am here? You know, like lightning in the, in the storm, just take them out. He says, don't talk to me like that. Jesus welcomes the most robust questioning. I think it's okay when you're going through the storm to be honest to God. Say, God, I feel like you don't care about me. Because if that's what's going on in your head and your heart, you need to be honest to God. He already knows that you're thinking that. Give, give speech to what's going on in your heart. Cathartic processing things with God in the presence of God, not stiff upper lip in it like, you know, this really sucks, but I'm not going to question God's goodness. The Bible is true, I believe it kind of thing. But you just don't feel it. You, what you experience is, is not that. And I want to encourage you and push you into an honest conversation, honest reckoning with God. Verse 39. He got up. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence! Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. It's amazing. Just think about it. Like, I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Perfect Storm. It's a great movie. It's special effects kind of thing. It's like hectic. This, like this boat is just like doing all this mental stuff. It's based on like a true uh, perfect storm. Three storms that collided together. Well, massive, massive waves. Uh, and I, I, I try and picture something similar to that in terms of size of waves and the boats like cruising on. And then this. Jesus gets up. And what does he do? He doesn't grab a bucket. He doesn't sit them all down and say, listen, chaps, you know, I wanted to teach you something kind of thing, so I brought you out. He's not, now, now's not the time to teach, whatever else. He gets up, and what does he do? He just speaks. And he says just a couple of things. He says, quiet, peace, be still. Shut up is the word actually he uses. Silence, be still. Shh, shh, shh. And immediately the wind ceases, 
And it says there is a great calm. The, the shift from massive waves and the boat rollicking and rolling and filling up with water to have you ever been on the water when it's just glass? I used to do a lot of fishing kind of thing, so maybe some of you have not been on those boats as, as often as you should have been. Um, but there's something wonderful about being out on water when it is just glassy, smooth. That's what I have in my head here. There is a great calm. And all of a sudden, their boat and the other boats with them, remember there's other boats with them, possibly smaller boats, they're all watching this. This guy gets up and he starts shouting at the weather. And the next thing that happens is a... Maybe as quickly as it came up, they are now sitting on the Sea of Galilee and it's absolutely dead calm. It wasn't a slow thing. It wasn't like an incremental improvement in the weather. Like the waves were 10 feet, now they're 6 feet. It's like it's a bit better. Maybe we'll be able to get back to shore. It says there is a great calm. It's just like glass now on this lake. Everything is just chilled out. And he did it by speaking. We're in a section of Mark, and you're going to see this over the next few weeks, where Jesus exercises and demonstrates his authority over different things. And the area here is his authority over nature. You'll see his authority over uh, demons. You'll see his authority over salvation. You saw last week his authority over the, the power of his word, how the word is this seed that just grows up without any attention and it changes and how it gets planted in the heart and produces a harvest. His authority, his authority, his authority. This picture that Mark is building for us of the authority of Jesus. And here you see it, authority over nature. Earlier, this is exactly the same phrases that Jesus uses to rebuke and to drive out a demon earlier in Mark. He also tells the demons, just, just, just be quiet and go. Be, be still, be silent. Be silent. And I'm not saying there are some people who think that this storm was demonic. I, I don't think that's true. I just think he has such authority and power that he just uses the same phrase. And demons and waves have to obey the same voice. I love the fact, you know, that I have this, this picture on my head that the waves remember and the wind remembers the voice that created them. They've heard this voice before when he made them. And now he's telling them, ah, no, 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 that's enough, thank you, be quiet. And immediately they have to listen. They have to listen. Nature has to listen to the Son of God. He has that authority to just settle this uh, storm. And there is a great calm. Now they're sitting in a boat, everything's chilled. Verse 40, then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's interesting, I always think it's interesting when you hear the words of Jesus, what tone do you think they come in? Hey? What tone do you think? For some of you, you're thinking the tone here is like your agitated parent. Like, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I mean, that's one tone. We don't know if you use that tone. Like, hey, disciples, slap, line them all up, give them a slap upside there. It's like, are you a bunch of clowns? Why did I call you? Or... Is it the tone of like a father to the, their kids? Hey, 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 why are you afraid? When John is terrified, he's seven. When I go to him and he's shaking, I say, hey, buddy, why, why are you scared? Why, I, I'm tender with him. I'm his dad. He's a kid. Hey, why are you afraid? 
I don't say it in, do you still have no faith? But you know what I'm saying? Like, you, when you, when you, do, you picture, do you picture the f- a fatherly tone or do you picture an agitated principal or parent getting really annoyed? Like, hey, come on, man, where's your faith? You still have no faith. Why are you afraid? Get your act together. Or is there a tenderness in Jesus to the disciples to say, why are you guys so afraid? Do you, do you still have no faith? I'm not sure. But either way, either way, either tone, what is the problem? Is a lack of faith. It doesn't matter whether it's a, the tone comes harshly or tenderly. The problem is he's diagnosing with them is there's a, lack of, there's a lack of faith. And he says, do you still have no faith? In spite of what they've seen, he says, do you still have no faith, guys? The last little bit, we've been traveling together. I've been driving out demons, healing the sick, like not one or two people who had a cold. You know, he's been demonstrating miraculous supernatural power. He's been teaching in a way and teaching with an authority that nobody else has, opening up their eyes to all of these things. And now they're in this boat and they are terrified. And Jesus semi-rebukes them, inquires of them, said, do you still still have no faith in spite of what you've seen, what you've experienced with me already now when the, when the storm hits, all of that evaporates. And isn't that like us? When, when, when you go through storms, you forget. You get spiritual amnesia. You forget how faithful God has been. You forget the kindness of God. You forget the goodness. You forget how loved you are by him. You face a storm and suddenly it's like, God, do you care? We forget we have, we have spiritual amnesia. And you know what else we do? We ignore this. We ignore this book. This is a record of God's faithfulness. This is a record of who he is and what he's done and what he thinks of you. And we ignore this. I want to say this. When you go through a storm, you know where you need to camp. You need to camp in the pages of this, in the presence of God. Because this is where we get to see who God really is. Because the storms will lie to you. The storms that you go through will lie to you that they are in greater control or that your life is threatened or whatever else so they're going to wash out in a different way. This book tells you something different about who God is and what the purpose of a storm is and the trial in your life and how God loves you and how he has faithful, faithfully rescued his people again and again and again and how he has remained faithful when they have been faithless. This is not so much about the faith of the disciples, is it, that calms the storm. It's about the authority of Jesus and what he's doing. I don't want to be one of those guys that says, like, man, the reason why this is happening in your life and all this stuff is your lack of faith. You know? All you need to do is go on a faith boot camp, wind up the faith a bit, G it up, and then you can calm the storms kind of thing. That's nonsense. I don't think that's in the Bible. Does God reward faith? Does God work with faith? Yes, absolutely. But I don't want to lay another burden on people going through a storm that say the reason you're still in the storm is because you lack faith. No, no, the, the, the Lord of the storm decides when it ends. The Lord of the storm decides when it ends. It's not dependent on your faith rising up and down. Are you with me? That's not another burden you need to carry when you're in the middle of a storm. But we do forget to be in this book. We do forget the faithfulness of God. Have you still no faith? Jesus asks them. In verse 41, what happens? It says, and they were terrified. And asked one another, who then is this? Who is this guy? 
Even the wind and the sea obey him. They've seen other things obey him, haven't they? And now they're like, even the wind and the sea obey Who is this guy? Have a look. There's a word there. And they were what? Terrified. They were terrified. There are three uses. Here's a quick Greek lesson. There are three uses of the word great, mega, in this, in the original. There is a great storm. There is a great calm. And then there's a great fear. Here. Terrified. The point of this is there is a great storm you know, that we made clear. Then there is a great calm. It's the same. There is a mega calm. Not a bit of an improvement, like I said. There is glass on the water. But then there is a third mega. There is a mega fear. The disciples are more terrified now than they were in the storm. The mega only is attached to the fear now. The fear they felt earlier, when Jesus says, why are you afraid? He says, why do you lack courage? That's the translation. Why are you lacking courage right now? But now they are described as having a mega fear. They are terrified. Why? They, let me put it simply for you. They're more scared of the guy in the boat than the storm. That's what Mark is saying. They are terrified of the guy who's in the boat with him. Who is this? Who is, who, who are you? Everything listens to you. And they are terrified to be in the boat with the Lord of the storm. They don't know Jesus, yet their eyes are still there on a process. We're only in Mark 4, let's put it that way. You know, there's still a few more chapters. There's still lessons they need to learn. They don't know yet who Jesus is. They're still figuring it out, and I suppose so are we. We've got, we got more data, if you want. But when they see Jesus, and he cracks open a bit more for them of who he really is, they are absolutely terrified. And I think that's appropriate. I think it's perfectly appropriate response to have a reverent fear of God when we see him for who he is. You see, the, the, pro, the appropriate response to God revealing more of who he is, is awestruck worship and wonder. Are you with me? When God, this is who I am, we're not like, oh, that's cool. And we just roll on with life. Somebody described it like this. They said, like, if Jesus rocked up at your house and rang the doorbell, your response wouldn't be, hey, come on in, buddy. Your response would be to fall on your face. You take it or leave it. I think, I think you see it again and again in the scriptures, don't you? When people see Jesus, especially in his resurrected state, they, they fall down. It's just this like, who are you? Who then is this? You, you, yes, you're closer than a brother. You're our friend. You love us. But seeing a glimpse of the glory and the power and the authority and the majesty of Jesus causes something in people. In the disciples, yeah, it causes absolute fear. And in us, I think it should cause a reverence. It should cause a reverence. There's two things I want us to focus on as we, as we close this out this morning. I think that seeing Jesus clearly, or more clearly, should result in two appropriate responses. One is, is worship. Is worship. And as we, as we see uh, in this account again this morning, 
the authority of Jesus over nature. Uh, it's easy for us to just be like, well, that doesn't ever happen anymore. Jesus has never like, changed the weather in my life. You know, like I, 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 if I had like 20 rand for every bride who asked me to pray that it wouldn't rain on their wedding day, you know, I'd be rich. You know, like as if I have some influence. Like, yeah, there, I remember one bride saying, yeah, speak to your boss. And I was like, I'll speak to my boss. <laughs> I'm not the boss. You know, I can put in a request with the boss. You know, like, now the guy said, get on the, he likes this image of the big red phone. As if I've got like some like, you know, phone at my home or something. Like, I don't know, like, or some hotline to God. Like, you talk, we, we can't pray about the weather at our wedding. You pray. You talk to the Lord and make the sunshine. I'm like, look, here you have Jesus with a different kind of authority. I can pray it won't rain. I mean, how many of you try to boss the weather around? doesn't work. You can be most wishful thinking, oh, I hope it doesn't, or hope it rains or it doesn't rain. We have very limited ability to control the weather. Here, Jesus is put before us to say, like, he just speaks and everything has to obey him. There's no one like him. We're not measuring Jesus up to anyone here. And our appropriate response when you see glory and authority and power like that is to worship him. And if you are here or you're listening to this and you're not, you're not a a believer in Jesus, that's the appropriate response when God opens up your eyes to see more of who he is, is to, as it were, fall face down in worship and to say, who is this? Who then? Who then is this? Who is Jesus? Yes, he's the savior of the world, but he's the king of glory. He's the powerful, authoritative, mighty one of heaven, and he's worthy of our worship. The second thing that I think um, seeing Jesus more clearly should bring about us bring about in us is, is a peace, a different kind of, of peace, the, the, where our hearts get to rest in the midst of storms. Because we realize that in the gospel, um, without stretching an analogy too far, Jesus has got into the boat of your life. And he has promised to never leave. And he will lead you into some storms, but he knows what he's doing in them. He is testing, he's refining, he's growing you, he's showing you more of who he is, and he is still the Lord of the storm. And when he wants it to stop, it stops. But he's with you in it. He's not just pulling the strings of the universe. He's got into the boat of your life and promised to never leave you, to forsake you, to go through all of those things with you. There's a peace that comes to us. Jesus was the one resting on the cushion. We now, I think, get to rest on the cushion. Because there's nothing you can do about the storm of your life. You get to lie down and have a nap and ride out the storm as it were. You know what I mean? I mean, you're not napping through the trials. I don't want to make light of difficulties that people are going through or will go through. So some of you are going through storms. Some of you, this is advance warning. Because that's what life happens. Life is storms and trials, aren't they? That's what the Bible promises us. Don't be surprised. Is it in James? Don't be surprised in St. Peter where the, the, the fiery trial comes upon you because the tested genuineness of your faith is being borne out. As Jesus promises us, to say, hey, you're going to experience difficulty because there, there is a, there's a genuineness to your faith that gets tested by fire and by trial and by storm. You learn something about yourself in the midst of storms. Storms expose what calm seas don't. I didn't mention that with the disciples. Storms expose what 
calm seas don't. What's their first reaction? Don't you care that we're going to die? All they needed was one storm for them to doubt whether Jesus cared about them. The same thing's going to happen to us. The storms will show what you think about God. When the storms of life come, where do you go to? What do you think? What do you pray? What do you reach for? It exposes what's inside of us, our view of God, our view of trial and storm. It all gets flushed out when the storm starts. It's good for us. God knows what he's doing. He needs to do that with us. But there's a fear that drives out other fears. There is a fear that drives out other fears. The fear of the Lord drives out the fear of storms and trials, what you're going through. And God needs to help us develop more of a healthier fear of the Lord than a fear of what we can see with our eyes when we're in the midst of a storm. In Psalm 19, uh, it's described like this, that the fear of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is pure. That word uh, means ceremonially clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's, it's not dirty. It's not, it's not mired in sin. A lot of our fears um, are, are mired in sin. And I, I think that's partly why you could interpret Jesus' uh, rebuke to the disciples as maybe a rebuke, because sometimes we're fearful out of sin. It's because we love our own comfort, so we've got the, all these other idolatries and things going on. That's why we're afraid. That's where the fear is coming from. It's a sinful thing. The fear of the Lord, it says, is pure. It's ceremonially clean. You want that kind of a fear. We want to live in that. Lord, help us to live in the fear of the Lord, in this clean fear. Not with the dirty fear of our, of our sin and that mess. As we, as we close out this morning, what I wanted us to do was just to sit. And uh, if you're at home or watching online, you're welcome to do this as well. Just to sit with yourself for a couple of minutes before we sing and pray together. And to allow the truth of this to wash over you. I'm probably going to pray, I think, a couple of times as we do this. Because some of you will be in a storm or a trial. Some of you will have others who you know who are going through it and you don't know how to help them. Some of the storms you are experiencing are because of difficulties other people are going through. Or you need to ready yourself for the next trial. Some of you still feel a bit battered and bruised from the last trial or the storm you went through. And your faith has been shaken. You're further away from God now. You haven't drawn nearer to him. You're maybe a bit scared of him. This can happen to a lot of people when you go through a time of testing or trial. And, and it rattles you. One, one, of the, one, of the, not appropriate, one of the responses can be that you lose a bit of trust and confidence in God's goodness. And you think... You want to withdraw a little bit. Just keep a bit of distance. Put a bit of arm between you and God. It's like, it's cool. Like, I understand that you love me and trust me. I'm not going to get too close kind of thing in case we go through that again. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. Wherever, whatever condition your heart is in this morning, I would encourage you to come to him. Say, Father, this is, this is me. This is what I'm going through. These are my fears. I'm a big believer that everyone has fears. I have not met a single human being who's not afraid of something. And it's a very helpful exercise to allow the Holy Spirit to drill down into your heart to say, well, what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid? Are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of your finances? Are you afraid for your safety? Are you afraid for your children's safety? Are you afraid for your health? Are you afraid you 
will st stay single, or you're afraid you won't be able to have kids. We could keep going the whole day. Everyone's got different fears. What, what is the fear? Because human fear is crippling. And the fear of the Lord is liberating. And we want to move from crippling fears to liberating fear. Clean fear. We want to move from dirty fear to clean fear. And so let's pray. Let's just sit, sit before the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and rest and allow the peace of the Lord of the storm to wash over us this morning. Jesus, we worship, we worship you this morning, Lord of all the storms. We thank you that you have absolute power and authority, but that you're also equally good and loving. In you is this collision of all power and authority and all love and compassion. We worship you for that this morning. We want to just take some time now to be quiet in your presence. We ask, Father, that you would search our hearts by the Holy Spirit to see what it is that we're afraid of and to be honest and open with you, to pour out our hearts about our greatest fears, but not just to have a conversation where we're telling you things you already know. We, we ask, we invite, we plead that the peace of God would wash over us, that we would experience and know you again, Jesus, the Lord of the storm, speaking your authority and your truth and the goodness of the gospel over us this morning, reminding us that you are, as it were, in the boat of our lives forever to exercise your authority and to lead us through any storm for our good and for your glory. And so come and search our hearts now and help us as we wait upon you. We so desperately need your help, we so desperately want to be liberated people, not trapped and paralyzed in fear. We ask you for your help now. Father, we acknowledge that sometimes our fears come from our own, our own sinful hearts, our own waywardness, our own idolatry and worship of other things. And 
We pray that you'd be searching our hearts this morning, helping us to see those things afresh. But thank you that there's so much grace and compassion in you that even, even in there, you're able to help us. It's not like you, you can't go there. You're frustrated with us. You're just casting us off because our fear comes from our own sin. Thank you that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. And we thank you that you move towards us. You're always moving towards us, even in our waywardness and our worship of other things, to draw us back to you, that our hearts would be at rest in you, that we would have this clean fear of the Lord rather than a fear contaminated with the pollution of our hearts. And so please help us this morning. We so long to live joy-filled lives away from the suffocating restrictions of fear. And I pray for my friends here this morning that for those who are struggling with fear, for those who are overwhelmed in the midst of the storm, they would experience and know again today the presence of the Lord of the storm may not be the time for the storm to end yet. Father, you know what you're doing. You know your timing is perfect. We trust you in that. It may, the storm may carry on longer. Some storms go on for years and years in your wisdom and in your sovereign care. And yet I pray that we would know you, the Lord of the storm, in the midst of it. And experience your power, your authority, your sustaining grace in ways never known before. 